Well, we're in a season, or a series here, where we're looking at uh, the table of Jesus. So we've been looking at um, the table as we come together as a place of God's presence, that, that God wants to be present with us at not only the table here, but the tables in our lives. And it's a place of resonance. This table that we come to together and all the tables that we are at are places where we can hear the story of God speaking into our lives and calling us out to live into that story and transforming us to become people that look more like Jesus. And then importantly for this series, what we've also talked about is that this table that we come to on a Sunday morning, the Lord's table or the communion table, there's several different names for it, is also there's an idea of an extension of this table into the rest of the world in the Bible. So we don't just come here for this table today, uh, although we do. We come here, we receive the meal that Jesus has provided for us. He's the host. And so he says, my body is the bread, the wine is my blood. It's given for you. I've given myself to make this meal for you. I'm the host. And we come as guests here, but we extend that, as we looked at last week, into our homes. The tables that we have in our homes, where we become the host. And we invite others into that space. And we extend this table. All the things that we do here, all the ways that we prepare for this table are the same things that we take into our homes. And now, in this next two weeks, we're going to be talking about how do we extend the table even one step further into the playgrounds and the parks and the pubs and the cafes that we go into the the homes of our friends. How do we extend the table into that third space as well, the table of mission? And so all the same things are true as we look at this third table, that God is present, that he wants to partner with us, and that he wants to minister in and through us to other people around us. So we're going to look at this, next, this third table as we wrap this series in the next two weeks. And in order to do that, uh, we've been looking at various instructions that Jesus has had for us in, about tables in the Gospel of Luke. So this morning we're going to look, and the next two weeks we're going to be looking at Jesus' instructions about the third table, the table of mission, from Luke 10. So I'm going to read that for us. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he told them the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now go. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag, traveling bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. This is God's word. So we're going to look at this in the next, for the next two weeks, and I believe that there's four things here that I want to, or there are four things here that I want to point out that will help us to understand and to live in, those, in the third table, in the table of mission. And here's what they are. We had focused on the call of Jesus, the context that we're called to minister into. The third is the character that we're just called to display when we go to these places of mission. And then the fourth is the communication. So the call, the context, the character, and the communication. And I would just like to point out that this is the first time I've successfully alliterated anything. So, I know. Thank you. It did say hold for applause in my notes, so thank you for that. 
Um, but I, I believe I'm a real pastor now, is what I've heard. Okay, so we're going to look at these four things for the next two weeks. Today we're going to look at the first two. So the first thing I want, or I noticed, and I want us to notice as we look at this passage, is the repeated words. I've been um, preparing for our, uh, we're probably going to do a Genesis 2 and 3 study in the fall. And I've been preparing, and one of the people that I'm reading, he just says again and again, when you hear, the, so the Bible doesn't have uh, uh, chapters and verses, or it didn't have footnotes. So one of the ways that they can draw our attention to things is by repeating words, repeating them, repeating them, repeating them. And in this passage, we see this word repeated several times, send. Jesus, it says, Jesus sent them. And then he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. And then, it, in fact, at the end, it says, go, go, I'm sending you. And we're coming back here when we notice these words to a theme that we've already looked at in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus, after he's been resurrected, he meets these two guys on the road to Emmaus, these two disciples. And, and after meeting them, he meets all, all the disciples. And one of the things he says to them is, y'all are my witnesses. You, you guys, all of you, men and women, are my witnesses. That I'm leaving, but I'm sending the Spirit to you in order to send you out into the world to witness to the things that you've seen. And so we noticed in that time that the church is supposed to have a focus beyond the walls here. This is not our only focus. And as we've been noticing in this series, if we only focus on this time and this place, what we'll end up with is what, uh, is what David Fitch calls maintenance mode. And he says most of the churches in the West are in maintenance mode. We're just focused on what happens here, on putting on a good show, whatever that is. And we're not, we're, we don't want to be like that. And so this is not the only focus that we have. And our homes are not the only focus that we have. Christy mentioned community groups. And that's a big part of our community life here where you can go and you can talk through what you're going through and share your story. But it doesn't even just extend to our homes that we are to go into this third circle of mission into the world. Jesus has given us this mission or this assignment that the table, he longs for it to be extended not only through our homes, but actually into the world. Now, one of the things I noticed in my study of this passage in the past week was something I never noticed before, which is that these words on the, on the screen here, sent, they actually have quite an emphasis to them that I never really noticed before. Another way of translating this word, there's two different words in Greek that are here, is you could say it like this. Jesus could be saying, I'm ordering you out of here. Like, I'm dismissing you from my presence, or I'm driving you out. In other places, it's, it's translated like that. So you may be um, familiar with a story of Jesus where, the, where Satan comes, the Satan comes and tempts him, tempts him three times. And at the end of that third temptation, Jesus says to the Satan, he says, I'm sending you out. Get out of here. It's exactly the same word. There's a force and an emphasis and an emotion behind these words for Jesus, that he is sending the disciples out. Another way of saying this is that the table that we come to, if Jesus' presence is here, the table that we come to both has a massive pull to draw us into this table, but then also a massive push to invite us to go from this table into the world. So the pull is, is uh, maybe best articulated for me in Luke 15. There's a very famous story that Jesus tells about two sons uh, who shame their father. It's often called the prodigal son. So the, the younger son, he says to his dad, I, I wish you were dead. Give me, half, give me my inheritance. Give me half of what I'm owned, uh, owed from you. And the father amazingly does it. And then the son, he takes that money and he just goes and he parties. And he spends all of his money and he finds himself at the lowest. He's feeding pigs which in uh, Jewish culture at that time would have been like the lowest thing you can do. He's eating the same thing as the pigs, and he thinks, look, if I could just go home and be a servant in my dad's house, it would be so much better than this. So he starts walking home, and the whole time he's just rehearsing his story, like, I'm so sorry, Dad, just let me be a servant. And it says, while he was a long ways off, 
the father sees him, which means the father has been waiting the whole time. And the father runs to him. As one commentator said, Middle Eastern men in that culture, they don't run. That's shameful. The father sprints towards the son, throws his arms around him, and says, come in, let's have a feast. Come to my table. The son doesn't get one word out. No apology. The father just says, come to the table. Come, come in. I want to host you here at the table. And then interestingly, at the end of the passage, the older son, who's just been serving at home the whole time, which is maybe more how you feel. I've been following Jesus my whole life, and there's no feast for me. So the older son goes out, which again would shame the father deeply in that culture. But instead of casting that son out, what the father does is he goes out to the older son, and he begs him, he says, please come in to the table. Come and feast with me. I long to host you here. And every time that we come to this table, there's the same call from God, the same emotional plea. He is waiting for us. He is running towards us, inviting us to meet him at this table, to take this life-giving meal into our, our lives and into our hearts. And, and, and just as much as he longs for us to be drawn in, he actually longs to send us out. That's what this passage is telling us that we're drawn in with this deep emotion and this call of Jesus to come to the table. And there's also this then draw to go out into the world, to carry this message out into the world. And Jesus says that he has a a room at the table for one more. And so he sends us into the world as his ambassadors, as uh, as his sent ones, into the world to invite people back to this table. So he says, I send you. This is the call of Jesus. And I know, especially when it comes to talking about mission or evangelism, that a lot of us have baggage around it. And we have some like really weird ideas floating around in our head of things that have happened to us or things that we've done. And we're going to address some of that in this series. But I also want you to hear the call of Jesus in and through this, that he longs for more people to come to his table. He longs for people to feel or to experience this jubilee promise that there is good news for them, that there is a face in, that there is freedom, that there is release, that there is renewal at this table. There is an invitation to become truly human, who you are meant to be. And so he sends us out. That's the call of Jesus. And again, I know that we have baggage, we have have, uh, different things that are going through our head when we hear about mission. But will you hear the call of Jesus, the invitation for us to be sent out? So that's the first thing, the call of Jesus. The second thing I want to look at, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of the time today, is actually the context of where we find ourselves doing mission. So the disciples, it says, they were sent out into the towns and the places in the ancient Middle East. So what's it like for us to be sent into Vancouver? What is it like for us to take our context here seriously? And I'm going to start with what, the con- what our context is not. And I'm going to blow your minds here. You're all ready? You ready? Okay, here we go. The first thing, we are not in America. (laughs) Sorry to, I'm glad you're all sitting down, okay? We're not in America. Now, we're going to do something fun for me, may not be fun for you, but hey, I get to do this, I'm up here. We're going to look at a graph, and uh, if you want to know a little bit about me, I subscribe to a, a newsletter weekly, which is called Graphs About Religion. Very exciting for me. It's the highlight of my week, actually, every week. Uh, so I'm just letting you in on the joy that I feel. Okay, so here's a graph that, that we're taking a look at. Sorry, it might be kind of hard to see. So on the, on the bottom axis, so on the bottom uh, of it, is called GDP per capita. 
which is basically, this is how wealthy a country is. So if, if you're farther to the right, your country is farther to the right, that means you're wealthier. If your country is farther to the left, that means you're generally a poorer country. So the people in your country are poor. And on the y-axis, or on the vertical axis, is how important a country thinks religion is. So the farther up your country is on this graph, the more important religion is to your people. The farther down your country is on this graph, the less important religion is to your, pe- to your people. And so what we see on this graph is called a correlation, a very strong correlation, in fact, which is this little dotted line. That basically means this. If you can't see it, it's okay. I'm happy to forward the email on to you later if you'd like to see it. In fact, there's a whole book about it. It's quite exciting. But the, you can see that dotted line. It basically just says this. There's a very strong correlation that as your country gets richer, religion becomes much less important. Now, we could go for many a beer or a coffee and talk about this. It's very interesting. That's actually not my point today. My point today is two things. First, I want you to notice this. Look where the United States is on this graph. You can go to the next one. Right there. That is what we call in statistical analysis an outlier, which basically means they do not fit the pattern of this graph. And they're not just an outlier. they're, They're an outlier basically among on the whole world. That they do, they're, even though they are quite wealthy, religion for some reason is still very important in America. Okay, this is neither bad nor good. I'm just pointing out what it says. The second point is this. Where do you think Canada is? Just take a second to think about it. This is where Canada is right here. Okay? So we are much more in line with the rest of the world as our country has become more economically prosperous religion has gone down. We're much more like the rest of the world. So here's my point. I'm not trying to say America's bad and Canada is good, although we all believe that. We can just move on, okay? I'm trying to say that it is not the same context. It's not the same context. And so that means a lot of the missional ideas and the church ideas that are used in the States actually won't work here. It's, it's, it's dub, more than double difference. So you can see on the bottom is zero. That's how important religion is. At where United States is, over 50% in the States, people in the States think that religion is very important. Canada, it's about 10%. So they're 40% more or a 400% increase. I could go on if you're interested later. Uh, very, very interested in that. But see, here's the, here's the thing I'm trying to say. I've been in ministry now in Vancouver for over 15 years. And I can tell you what happens almost every year, and it'll happen in September. Americans, well-meaning Americans, will come up here, and they will try to, to start a church, or they'll try to do some ministry. And they're wonderful people, generally speaking. Okay? And they, what they do is they take and rinse and repeat the, the things that work in suburban Chicago, and they'll try to start it here. And it almost never works. Almost never And it's not because they're dumb. It's not because they don't love Jesus. It's not because they haven't prayed harder. It's because it's a different place. Now, because America is our big neighbor to the south, because we speak the same language, and because they have way more people who care about faith, they have this massive voice in our heads about how we should do church, how we should do ministry, and what our world looks like. It really informs us. But the reality is that we're actually much more like Australia and Belgium and Japan and Norway than we are like America. Those are, that's the countries who are much more like us down here. And so we need to understand that we're not in America. Again, this isn't to dunk on them. That's a different sermon. We have that one later. Um, but it's just to say our context is different. And so we can't be fully informed by what they think 
and what their attitudes are towards mission specifically. So here's the second thing. Are you guys ready? That was, I know that was a big one. We're also not in the 1960s. We're not in the 1960s. Again, I apologize that this is all news to you. Um, but here's what I mean. Let me give you an example. So in 1984, which is not even the 1960s, Billy Graham came to Vancouver. Anybody here that went to that? I, I guess I might be outing some people here of the age and things like that. Okay, anyways, here's a picture from that time. BC Place. Just brand new BC Place. Billy Graham, I don't know if he played, would you call it played BC Place for a week? I don't know. He had revivals at BC Place for a week, okay? Uh, and over a quarter million people came. Almost 300,000 people in like five days came to BC Place, and over 10,000 people made personal commitments to Jesus in that time. Now, I guess 40 years later, we kind of might laugh at that, but I talked to some older people, older pastors, who were there, and one of them said to me, oh, that was like a life-changing time for me. I went there, I heard the gospel for maybe the first time in my life, and it completely turned me around, and I've changed the course of my life forever because of that time. Here's what another pastor said to me. He said, the impact of mission from that time was equivalent to starting 500 new churches in Vancouver in the Fraser Valley. And indeed, that's what would happen over the next decades. As that, from this week, like Vancouver and the Lower Mainland changed, they would say. Okay? So, let's fast forward to a few years ago. Uh, Billy Graham's son, Franklin, slightly more controversial character, rolls into Vancouver. Exactly the same strategy. Exactly the same. In fact, maybe even better. He had some band. He had Hillsong was there. Michael W. Smith was there with his coiffed hair. Uh, there was a ca- Canadian, uh, or sorry, a Christian comedian, which I don't know if that's a selling point for you or a negative. Um, okay, so he, he's here and he's like, oh, let's do the same thing. Rogers Place, sell it out. I'm here for three days. Let's let's take the Lower Mainland back for Jesus or whatever. I don't know what they said. Okay, three days. About thirty thousand people showed up. About 2,000 people supposedly made decisions for Jesus. And here's what Douglas Todd, who is a a very important religious writer for the Vancouver Sun in Vancouver, said. Franklin came not with a bang, but with a whimper, as they say. Not to mention a claim of thousands of saved souls. You can sense the sarcasm in his voice as he writes these words. Look, 40 years difference, exactly the same strategy, exactly the same family, actually. At best, at best, a tenth of the impact. Things have changed. We're not in the 1980s. We're not in the 1960s anymore. But unfortunately, for most of us, our missional mentality is stuck there. From the successes of those times. So when you think of, when I talk about mission, you're like, oh boy, are we doing a crusade? Like, this is what goes through our minds, even if we're like, I, I don't think he would be someone who'd do a crusade, but I'm still frightened that we might be doing a crusade. Are we doing a crusade? So, again, we're not in the 1960s. We need to move past that. We're not in America. We're not in the 1960s. And then the final one, most shocking to most of us, is going to be that we're not in Abbotsford. <laughs> We're not in Abbotsford. Now, let's take a look at some more data. This is just fun for me. I've been waiting. I've been sitting on this stuff for months, and I'm just like, oh, it's going to be so good. We're going to just pull it all out. Census data, friends. Okay, so 2021, Canadian government does this massive census data. I guess we're all sitting at home with, uh, in the COVID lockdown. We're like, I got nothing better to do. Sure, let's take a census. Most exciting thing about my, get it on Tuesday. You're like, I'm actually going to wait till Wednesday. This is so exciting. I have nothing else to do. Okay, so here's the first thing we need to notice, and I apologize if this is a little 
excuse me, a little grainy. So this is the census data across Canada, and there's three colors you can see. So the light blue, I don't know why they chose two colors of blue, okay? But they did. The light blue is how many people said they're Christian. The dark blue is how many people said they're not religious or secular. And then third is other religions, orange. So what I want you to notice from this graph, or this, this map, is that Vancouver, or BC, is the most secular province in all of Canada which came as news to me. I had always been told it was Quebec, but it's actually BC. It's the most secular, with over 50% of people being secular. And you might say, oh, John, actually, I can see that the Yukon is slightly higher. The Yukon is a territory, okay? Get your, get your stuff together. Get it together, everybody. Um, but it is also quite secular. It's fascinating what's different. Like, the Northwest Territories is over 75%, or sorry, uh, Nunavut is over 75% Christian, and then the Yukon is like 60% Secular. I don't. They maybe need to send some missionaries over. I don't really know what's going going on there. But that's BC, over fifty percent secular. Now let's zoom in on a local level of what's going on here. So this is a census. The census data that's put on a map. So the colors change slightly. You can't really see on the bottom, but the blue there is other. Those are people who have other religion. The red in this bottom left corner. Sorry, right here. This is the key. The red means that those people said that they're either Christian or Catholic. So if you see lots of red, that means the majority of people are Christian and Catholic. And if you see lots of green, that means people said, I have no religion. I'm secular. So here's what I want us to notice. If you look now at the map, what you see is traveling east to west or right to left on this map is it goes from red to green. It goes, in fact, from red to blue to green. So you can see in like Chilliwack and Abbotsford, again, this is, there's another sermon about dunking on Abbotsford. That's come back in the fall if you want to hear that one, Okay. The point is just to say, you can see there are neighborhoods, in fact, many neighborhoods out in Abbotsford and Chilliwack that are over 75% Christian. As you move west into Vancouver, you can see that that changes. Surrey, Surrey is mostly blue. Interesting, not interestingly, but obvious to probably many of us who have spent time there. There's loads of people uh, from a Sikh background, from a Muslim background who are there. But as we get into Vancouver, which is what I want to focus on, you can see it just turns to bright green, basically. We're not in... Abbotsford. And so um, as, we, as we look at Vancouver, what we see, if you want to zoom in one more, Hillary, this is Vancouver, almost all bright green, which means that almost every neighborhood in Vancouver is well over 50% of people who would say, I have no religion or I'm secular. Now let's look at, at this neighborhood. Our neighborhood is right here. Interestingly, the neighborhood that this building is in is actually one of the most Christian neighborhoods in Vancouver. According to the census data, about 30 people would say they're Christian or Catholic in, in this neighborhood, which is very high in Vancouver. 30%. Yeah, that's right. Now, this is the neighborhood that I live in, is, is the next one, Strathcona neighborhood. You can see it's bright green. In fact, the street that we're on, you can almost like go down to street level. It's 8% Christian. And here's the funny thing. Here's my reaction to that number. i like, that's high. I feel like that's high. Maybe all of our family voted. I don't really know in the census data. I'm like, I don't even know how that... I would have never guessed it's 8% of people. And, and I'll just point out one other very interesting thing for me. So you can see a bit of blue on this. Uh, there's one strip of blue, and then there's one strip that's kind of more blue. You know what those places are? That's Raycam and Jackson Place. That's social housing. That's mainly people who have come here and are immigrants and are living in those places and bringing their religion with them. That's the, the second highest proportion in my neighborhood. The vast majority, over 75%, no religion. No religion. So, why am I saying all this? It's not to dump on Abbotsford. 
It's just to show that our context actually is different. And I think all of us know that and we feel that. But again, when we, when we think about mission, even when we think about church, our minds are stuck in those three places. Our minds are stuck in America, our minds are stuck in the 1960s, and our minds are stuck in Abbotsford. And our context is, is very, very different. Here's what Tim Keller uh, says in his wonderful, wonderful book, How to Reach the West Again. If you guys want to read a book uh, this summer, it's super short. In fact, there's a free podcast. You can just listen to the whole book. Each chapter is like three minutes. It's really good. But listen to what he says. Western churches have many evangelistic methods and programs, but they all assume that there were still non-Christians in society who would seek out the church or at least be open to an invitation to come, who held basic concepts of God, truth, sin, and an afterlife and who thought that even if they did not believe religion was a positive good for many people. Three important statements here. First, that people, your average person, would feel pressure to come to church. That's what he said. It used to be like that, and maybe it still is like that in America, or it still is like that in Abbotsford. That people had a worldview that was aligned with Christianity's worldview. So if you sent your kids to to school, you would assume that the worldview of the teachers and the worldview of you were exactly, the Christians were exactly the same, even if they weren't Christians. And third, that people would feel that religion was good. These are assumptions that are a part of the past and we still carry into the future. He continues, For a thousand years, the Western church's basic ministry model then was premised on the social reality that people would be coming, prepared, and positive. Coming, prepared, and positive, and we could simply preach our sound biblical sermons to them. Let me just point out two things very quickly from this quote. First, this is really important for you to hear. Tim Keller thinks I preach sound biblical sermons. Okay, I've already put it on my LinkedIn. It's too late if you don't agree. The second thing is this. This is so key. This is the real point. If this is true, then our missional strategy can't just be bringing people to church. If this is what he's saying is true, and I think we all inherently know that that's true. They're not coming to church. Why would they come here? And if they come, they're probably not going to be coming prepared and positive. So the way that they're going to come is through the table. Us meeting them out at their tables, bringing them in to the tables of our home, the places that we host, eventually the hope would be that they'd come to this table to meet Jesus. That's the path. Getting them to come to church. If you want to invite people to church, that's fantastic. Go ahead. I'm just trying to tell you, missionally, that may not work. It's one of those things we have to kind of like decolonize our mind from not being in America, not being in the 1960s, not being in Abbotsford. They're not coming prepared or positive. And then he finishes by saying this. Increasingly, this is not the case. That's not the case where he ministered. As he even looks out in America, which we just saw is way more Christian than than BC or Canada or Vancouver, it's definitely not the case here. We're in a different context. So what is our context? I want to say three things about it. First, we live in a multicultural, post-Christian, and postmodern city. Now, what does that mean? Let me just give my brief on those things very quickly. The first, multicultural, that there are people in here from all over, there are people in our city from all over the world. That's basically what it means, carrying different stories. And it's not actually so simple as that. Because, for example, we might have somebody who's come from uh, Malaysia, and they came directly here. So they're very steeped in Malaysian culture, then they move to Vancouver. But then you also may get someone who from Malaysia who, by way of Harvard then worked in Toronto for two years and is now here. Then you'll get people from Malaysia who grew up here. Their parents came from Malaysia, and then they grew up here. And then you'll get people from all over the world doing that exactly same, exact same thing. So we've got a massive mix of cultures. 
And, and just because someone says, for example, that they're from Malaysia, it doesn't mean that it's the same thing. It could mean something very different to them. Everybody's here with different cultures and different stories. There's all sorts of stories floating around in our city, and we'll come back to that in a minute. The second is this, and this might be the most important for us to understand. That it's not only multicultural, but it's post-Christian. Now, what I mean by this is um, not just that there's lots of people here who are nuns. Not N-U-N, nuns, like with a habit or whatever. But people who say, I have no religion. That's true. We just saw that in the data. But it's not that those people just have no opinion about Christianity. They're like, well, I've never heard before about anything about Christianity. What is that? To say that they're post-Christian means that they've moved beyond Christianity. So it goes like this. Christianity used to be a part of our story in the past, but now it isn't. And I talked about this when we talked about uh, our community hermeneutic, that if we live in a Whig perspective of history, which just means that we look at our moments now as this golden moment, that the world could be amazing, and the past is kind of this dark, regressive place. And the future could be really great if we could all just get on the same page together, and we could stop being racist if we work together, all these different things. But if Christianity, then, is part of our past, then it's going to belong to that dark, archaic, regressive time. And so post-Christian means that we've moved beyond Christianity. So Christianity isn't just irrelevant in our city, it's actually dangerous. It's trying to hold us back from moving forward. That's what it means to be post-Christian. And this shows up in so many ways in our society, but since I'm on a, you know, stats kick, let me give you one more. So Cardis is a, is a Christian organization. They did this massive uh, research project in Canada in the last few years, and they called their, uh, their findings, uh, their, the, they put in this report, it's called The Shifting Landscape of Faith in Canada. And here's the three major findings that they found in their survey. Number one, um, can't read that. Upwards of 60% of all Canadians say God and religion should be completely out of public life. Number two, non-religious Canadians tend to view all faith groups as damaging to Canadian society. Not just neutral, damaging. And then the third one, Canadians under the age of 40 are actually much more positive about faith groups' contributions to public life than their older counterparts. And you're like, oh, well, that's a little positive. Let's continue with the quote. <laughs> Except for the contributions of Roman Catholics and evangelical Christians. <laughs> oh, no. Um, and uh, this is why. Some people ask me, like, why don't you ever use, like, there's no, I don't see the word evangelical on your website. I'm like, yeah, we scrub that word because of this. <laughs> right? Why don't, that's a four-letter word in Vancouver. I'm not going to use that word around here. But this is what people think. It's not just that Christianity is like, oh, I don't know, you do you. It's like, actually, if you take it seriously, that could be really negative for our society. It's bad. We're against Christianity. And so what's told to us on a very like personal level are what I call growing up narratives. It's a language that I stole from a philosopher named Charles Taylor. But basically, he says this. It goes like this, something like this. Yeah, I used to believe in Christianity, too, like when I was a kid. And I also believed in like Santa Claus. And I've grown up. And like maybe you should, too. That's the insinuation. That is the general opinion. I worked in campus ministry for years and years and years. That is what almost everyone believes and says. We're growing up. We grow, we've grown out of this. It's a post-Christian city that we live in. And then third, it's post-modern. There's been loads that's written about this. But here's what I'm just going to say very quickly, is that we don't inherit or receive stories about who we are. We're not told who we are. Rather, we create stories about ourselves. 
and we live in those stories. We try them on, and we try to figure out who we are by expressing ourselves. So rather than stories that come in to us, what we try to do is we express stories. So this is our city. Multicultural, post-Christian, post-modern. Not America, not Abbotsford, not the 1960s. And because of this, our city then has a massive range of people. When we think about mission, there's a massive range of people. You will, you will literally encounter people who have never heard about Jesus. They have no clue what Christians believe, and they have no baggage about it. I was, telling, I was sitting in my hockey locker room, getting changed beside a guy, and we were just chatting, and he's like, what do you do? And we got talking, and like, I'm a pastor. And he's like, oh, like, what do Christians believe? Like, I have no clue. This is a guy who's Canadian, has grown up here. He'd never met a Christian before in his life. And he's like, like what do Christians believe? And I was like, oh, I guess we're doing this now. Like, <laughs> eight minutes after the game, we're like, you know... And so it's not like he was like, oh, yes, I must believe in thy Lord Jesus Christ. But he'd never heard. And I got to share a little bit with him. And there's people like that that you'll encounter. Then you'll encounter loads of people who have left faith. And some of them have never actually even been involved. But again, it's that growing up narrative. I'm past that. Of course, I wouldn't go back and believe in that regressive thing. And a lot of them, this is really important for us to understand in Vancouver, they're living a good life. If we look back, remember back to that graph that I put up? If, if belief in the importance of religion goes down as people are wealthier, then if people are doing fine, then it's going to be more likely that their lives, they're going to not believe in God. And that's what's going on in our city. But why would I need Jesus? I'm doing fine. We seem to be doing fine. You'll also get people, Christians, in, you'll meet Christians in the city who are more political than anything else. Like, so you'll get people who said, Jesus came so that I don't have to wear a mask, or Jesus blesses everything that our city blesses. And that's how they hold on to faith. And then we've got people who are like actively deconstructing and reconstructing. And that's a lot of us in this room, actually. The way I describe our community when people ask me, and one of the ways I describe it is I say that a lot of people in this community, we inherited something about Jesus from our past. It was like a box, usually a very, very like well-made-up box of where everything goes, and you knew exactly where everything sat. And something happened in your life, probably living in a multicultural, post-Christian, post-modern city, where you're like, I want to hold on to Jesus, but I don't know how I can hold on to that box. And you're just negotiating. And we're so glad you're here. We want to negotiate along with you and learn how to renegotiate Jesus. And you'll meet people like that. And all of these people exist in our city because it's a multicultural, post-Christian, post-modern city. So we're the called. Jesus calls us. He gives us a mission. And this is our context, or at least a little bit about our context. I have so many more graphs, guys. So many more. But let me just close by making three notes about what this means for us. First, if we're called to this context, then we need to balance lament with vision. You know, last week we looked at an important question that Jesus asked the disciples when he's feeding the 5,000, if you know that story. So the, the, the disciples are trying to get away. All these people show up. They don't have enough food for them. And the disciples are like, let's send these people away. Like, we can't feed them. They're focused on what they don't have. And Jesus asks them a very different question. To become hosts, he says, don't focus on what you don't have. What do you have? And are you willing to take that, to bless it, to break it, and to give it so that my presence and my table might be extended to this group of of people? And that absolutely should change the conversation for us if we're going to be hosts. That's the question we have to ask. Not what don't we have But what do we have that we might use for God's kingdom and to set table, set places for people that they might meet with us and meet with God? And I think the same thing has to happen for us when it comes to mission. 
There's loads to lament about our city, and so many of us focus on that, especially if you've been here longer than a few years. Like, the first few years, you're like, wow! Uh, Especially in the summer. If you're here in the summer, you're like, yeah, this place is amazing. Um, But then, if you've lived here for a little longer, you're like, oh, it's lament. It's like, oh, the city is so expensive. Look, the downtown east side has not gotten any better, even though I served soup twice. What happened? I thought it was going to get better. And on top of this, there's Christian lament that we have. Oh, the city doesn't value family. If I send my kids to public school, then they're going to be whatever your worst fear is. And the city is against Christians in general. And all of that's fine. It's fine to believe that. I'm a pessimist too, right? It might be my spiritual gift, in fact. So, like, there's room to lament. I see these things as well. But maybe Jesus is asking us to also focus on a different question. What do you have? What does our city have that might actually make space for God to be present? And here's one of the things that I've just been thinking about for many years. It's actually the reason, one of the reasons we moved here. You know, in Revelation 7, it paints this beautiful picture of what the family of God is going to look like. It says this, After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And we prayed this passage before we gathered here this morning. The words that coming out of their mouths of just praise to Jesus, bowing before him. This has always been Jesus' vision for his family. A multicultural group of people. Every tribe, every tongue, every language. Wherever, whatever culture you come from, whatever your story is, the Bible actually says you have a unique gift to bring to this table, to this worship gathering. And for 2,000 years since this passage was written, the church has been praying this vision. God, would you reach the nations with the gospel? Every tongue, every tribe, every family. And they've been sacrificing for this vision that's in this passage. That everyone might hear the gospel in their own language. And until very, very recently in the history of the world, if you took this very seriously and you felt the call to go, you would have to leave everything that you had. You'd probably have to travel to another country and you would stay there for the rest of your life. And I want to just say, let's look around this room today. Look around the room. Who do we have here? What cultures do we have represented? Let's just shout a few of them out. I'll start. Hong Kong and Manitoba. Very different uh, <laughs> cultures. Other cultures. What, what cultures do we have in the room? Nigeria. Nigeria. Dutch. Dutch. Irish. Irish. Yeah. Ghanaian. Ghanaian. Paraguay. Irish, Swiss. Swiss. French, Swiss French. I didn't hear the second word. I heard Swiss brunch, and I was like, hey, yo, is someone going for brunch? Sorry, I just need to take a minute and uh, just chat about brunch here for a second. Um, okay, look, we could go on and on and on. Third generation, sort of Chinese, sort of not sure. We could go on and on and on. This is a small gathering of maybe like 100 people in Vancouver. The nations are here. Even in this room, the nations are here. We can look and we can lament our city, but we also have this vision ahead of us that this is an unbelievably unique time in history that the nations are actually in our city. And maybe they're open to the gospel, maybe they're not, but there's an unbelievable opportunity here for us as people who are here in the city. Let's balance our lament with vision. Don't just look at what we don't have, how impossible housing is here, but look at the opportunity that God has set up for us. It's a unique time in the history of the world where you could literally reach 80% of the cities in the world from Vancouver. 
When I worked at UBC, we took, a, we took a poll of what students are there from what countries. It's like 98%. From UBC, you can reach the world. That's part of the reason we come to cities, is because the world comes to cities. There's both lament for this place, but there's also vision. The second thing I want us to notice is if we're called to this context, then we need to become collectors of stories. We need to become collectors of stories. If everybody is here and we're coming from so many different places and cultures and we're also, um, we're also making our own stories to find our identity, then one of the best things we can do as followers of Jesus is actually become people who collect stories. I'll never forget this. I was a, a campus pastor at SFU for years, and we, we hosted this joint activity with uh, the out-on-campus, the LGBTQ community. And so I sat down for coffee with two of the leaders from that community. And I just said to them, hey, like, tell me a little bit about you know, your experience with Christian faith. And one of them, he said to me, oh, Christians, the best. My mom sings in a choir, so good, fabulous, fantastic. And I was like, oh, okay, not really expecting that, but interesting. The other person sitting there said to me, I actually used to be a youth pastor. And when I started having questions about my sexuality and gender, I told my pastor, he was the first person I told, And he told me, you're no longer welcome in this church. And then he went to my family and he told them they need to kick me out of the house. So I got kicked out of the house and I came to Vancouver. Two people, same organization, friends with each other, unbelievably different stories. When you've met one person, you've met one person. Capture their stories. That's why we spend so much time talking about story here. That's why we do gospel storytellers. That's why in our community groups we try to make space for you to share your story. If we live in a multicultural, post-Christian, and post-modern society where the stories that we try out and the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we tell other people are how we form identity, then stories become the context for mission for us. That's why it's so unbelievably important that we're narrating our stories and listening to the stories of each other. And it's not to king them. It's not to say, oh, your story then, you know, that's the most important thing in the world. No, we come as followers of Jesus around this story. That's the one that sits at the center of our community. But we must tell our stories, and we must become fantastic. If we are to take the call of Jesus into the city, we must become fantastic at listening to stories. And as we'll talk about next week, learning how to narrate this story into our context. Finally, if we're called into this context, then we need to gain hope that Jesus can work here. Let's finish with this Tim Keller quote. If it's true that more and more people lack any religious foundation, and that the dominant cultural narratives are making the Christian faith more offensive, then we must find new and compelling ways to share the gospel in this generation. In fact, we must discover a late modern vision, or version, sorry. Late modern is his way of describing the cultural context we find ourselves in. We must find a version of the evangelistic dynamic that fits our context of the early church, which grew through conversion in a similarly hostile and uncomprehending culture. This is what he's, he's saying, that there actually might be something in us for us in the Bible that will allow us to do a loop around of the ways that we've been informed by America, by the 1960s, by Abbotsford, that actually might have some resonance here for us today of how to do ministry and mission. And I think this is true and why we're spending time looking at this biblical narrative. That there's not, in the biblical narrative, there's not just information for how to do ministry in America or in the 1960s or in Abbotsford, but there actually might be something for us in Vancouver. There might be something for your colleagues, for your neighbors, for your family members, for your friends 
who don't yet know Jesus. This is our call, and this is our context. You can love it, or you can hate it. You could be the most optimistic person in the room. Lord knows it's not me. We need someone here to be optimistic. Or you could be pessimistic like me about this place and this time. But this is the mission field that God has given us. And we're here for a reason. And no matter who you are in this space in this time, you're also here for a reason. And as we move into the summer, which is a great time, I know at least for our family, for mission, it, it is a great, this summer is here for a reason, I guess I would say. Jesus says to the disciples, and by extension to us, that the harvest is plentiful. Which doesn't mean that if we prayed real hard, and we showed up on a Saturday, and we went and handed out tracts in this neighborhood, that we could take it from 30% Christian to 80% Christian. That's not what it means for us. Or that in a couple years when the new Alpha Film series comes out, that if we fast and pray for a week, and then we all invite ten friends, that they'll all come to faith. And then they all invite ten friends, and then they all come to faith. And then we start party lights, and then we also become rich, because they invite ten friends, and we sell candles to them, and then they send candles to ten more people. That's not the way that it's going to work. What Jesus is saying when he talks about the harvest being abundant is this, that there's more ministry out there in our city than we have people for. That there are more stories that need to be told and need to be listened to than we have laborers. And that there's a story that Jesus has that he wants to tell into the lives of our family and our friend and our neighbors. And so Jesus says, pray. Pray for ourselves. Pray for more Jubilee Dreamers. People who are willing to say, actually, I'm not going to have my story be the middle-class Canadian dream. I'm going to start to dream a jubilee story. He says, pray for table extenders who say, I'm coming to this table not just to come as maintenance mode, but actually to extend it out into the world. Pray for people who are willing to watch for alienation and resonance. Pray for more sent ones into our city because the harvest is plentiful. And you might say, God, why did you give me this field? Why did you give me this harvest? I wish you'd given me a different one. And that's fine and that's fair, but I think the invitation for Jesus, from Jesus for us in this season is to say that this is the field that God has given us, for better or for worse. And as Keller says, it's actually no different than the, the field that they faced in the first century church. There might be something that we can learn there. It's just different, but it's ours. It's our call. It's our invitation. And our church is looking for people who are willing to say, this is the field that God has called me to labor in. I'm going to orient myself to this place here. I'm not going to lose hope just because I can't see the harvest, but I'm going to receive this invitation to partner with God here in the city today. Are you open to saying yes to the call of Jesus in the context that we have? Let's pray to close. God, I um, have tried to mimic the passion with which you send out these 72 people. And so I pray that we would hear that passion today and that you would even instill it in our hearts. So as we respond together today, may we become people who are, are willing to leave the stories that we find ourselves in and instead receive your story that we are people who are called as we come to the table that you draw us here, that you long for us to meet you here, but you also call us out. So even now, would you start to give us vision for that? Help us to see the world as you do and help us to gain hope for this place and this time that you might be doing something here that changes the lives of the people very close to us, those in our family, 
those are our friends, those are our neighbors, but also that you might even use um, our efforts here in this small little community in Vancouver to impact the world, that this vision of Revelation 7 would become more real uh, because our willingness to partner with you. So we give you this time as we respond, and we ask that you would make yourself great and that you would, uh, we would hear your invitation to, to respond to you and be invited to the table. So we, we thank you for this time and pray these, these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.